Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Thank you to our sponsors at Storm My Teamer for making our podcast possible. Storm My Teamer provides personalized treatment options that help you stay in remission longer. Live tumor preservation, genetic sequencing, sensitivity testing, and immunotherapies are just some of the options available. Hello, my friends. I'm so happy to be connecting with you this week on Breast Cancer Conversations. I'm your host, Laura Carfing, and if you're joining us for the first time, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and receive notifications each week we come out with a new episode. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And to all of you who tune in every week, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. In this episode, I will let William introduce our guest. But before we begin, I just wanted to give a quick update to all of my listeners out there. And thank you so much for being such a huge supporter. In this episode, I shed light on some of the little scares that I had with regards to feeling shortness of breath, what I thought was actually allergies, but the psychological components of what goes on when we have a cough or when we have a cold. We are thrilled that our guest takes us on a deeper dive into speaking about aromatase inhibitors. We look at nutrition, plant-based diet, and the topics of lifestyle and culinary medicine. There's so much we cover in this hour, so let's get started. William? Greetings all. Today we are recording Dr. Amy Commander, who is a medical director of the Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham, Massachusetts, where she also serves as director of breast oncology and cancer survivorship at MGH Waltham and at the Newton Wellesley Hospital. She is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. She received her undergrad degree and a master's degree in biology at Harvard. She received her medical degree at Yale University School of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency training and hematology oncology fellowship training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. She is board certified in hematology and medical oncology. Dr. Commander is well known for her compassionate care and passionate devotion to her patients. She has served as a medical advisor to One in 40, a nonprofit organization dedica- dedicated to educating people of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage about the one in 40 chance of having inherited a BRCA mutation. In addition, she has an interest in proving the quality of life and outcome of cancer patients through important lifestyle interventions, including exercise, diet, mind-body interventions, and educational initiatives. She has a strong interest in promoting healthy lifestyles for both her active treatment patients as well as those in the survivorship stage. She practices what she preaches, having run marathons, including the Boston Marathon, last year running with Team NWH, Newton Wellesley Hospital. She raised over $30,000 to fund development of a survivorship program that she has started for women with breast cancer. This September, in collaboration with Dr. Beth Frades, she has launched Paving the Path to Wellness, a lifestyle medicine-based survivorship program for women with breast cancer. Welcome to the conversation. Laura here. I'm here 
trying this live Facebook thing. I know last time I tried this live Facebook thing when I was doing a podcast recording, everyone was sideways. So now we're going to try Live and Learn. And we are here with Dr. Amy Commander. So let me see if I can just get everyone set up so you can get the honest view. Hi. Hi. This is very exciting for me, too. I think this is my first Facebook live opportunity. Nice. So. Oh, that's awesome. I think we're both on the screen. Yeah, okay, excellent. Hi. So for those of you who like watching, um, we are not monitoring the chat box, but please feel free to like give thumbs up, hearts, all that great stuff. And we'll get back to you afterwards. So this is like the uncut version. So you'll have to tune in to the podcast once everything is edited. All right, so let's get started. My name's Laura Carfang. I am the uh, executive director of survivingbreastcancer.org, which I'm sure you're aware of. I know we had the opportunity to meet for coffee not too long ago and kind of share all of this excitement around breast cancer diagnoses, which is kind of like not the most happiest topic to talk about, but then also talking about how we can move our lives forward. And so we are so thrilled to have you today on Breast Cancer Conversations, which is our podcast. We release episodes every week on all topics of breast cancer. So it's really the huge umbrella of let's just talk about it. And it's very conversational focused and hopefully fun for you. So we're really thrilled to have you on the show. So we have Dr. Amy Commander here and I needed to actually read your exact title because I know recently you got um, a new title given to you. So this is Dr. Amy Commander, who is the medical director of the Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham. And she also serves as the director of breast oncology and cancer survivorship at Mass General Hospital Waltham and at Newton Wellesley Hospital. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to be on your podcast. Um, I'm so impressed by the work you're doing, and that's why I'm so glad we got yeah, to meet when, a few months ago at this point, I think when we had coffee together, and I love the work you're doing and how you're spreading such a hopeful message and also trying to provide such education about all these important topics for um, breast cancer and breast cancer survivorship. So congratulations yeah, to you. the wonderful work you're doing in this field. Um, it's just amazing. And it's really cool to be on this podcast with you to help provide further education about my interests as well. Certainly as a breast cancer oncologist, I treat women um, of all stages of breast cancer. And also I see women who are considered high risk for breast cancer and talk about prevention and mm. steps women can take to hopefully prevent a diagnosis of breast cancer in the future. And that's a major interest of mine as well. Um, I'm also very interested in the genetics of breast cancer. And as you know, in our prior conversations, a major interest of mine is cancer survivorship and how we can optimize health and well-being for women after they've been through breast cancer treatment in order to optimize quality of life and of course, improve outcomes. Yes. Absolutely. And we have so many questions that I don't yeah. want to just like dive deep into like the burning questions just yet. Um, but when I was reading a little bit about your bio, I think part of your background is around hematology oncology. Correct. Can you yeah. explain to our listeners a little bit what that means? Sure. So, um, so I did my, after medical school, I did my residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston and had excellent training and wonderful mentors. And then when you're in residency, you can choose what field you want to go into. You know, some people choose to do primary care, which is wonderful. And some choose to go into a specialty such as cardiology, gastroenterology, or hematology oncology. And obviously I chose to go into hematology oncology and I did my fellowship 
at BIDMC as well, and there I was trained in caring for patients with all different types of cancers and mm -hmm. hematologic disorders. And fellowship's pretty intense. Um, certainly those were great years of learning, and I very much value the amazing mentorship I had and the amazing colleagues I worked with. Um, and during that time, I had the opportunity to work with some wonderful people in the field of breast oncology, and that's kind of how I ended up in this role. Excellent. So when I think about breast oncology, in my own experience, I'm yeah. thinking this is the doctor that is helping me navigate all of the chemotherapy treatments that I'm going to be pursuing <clears throat> based on the type right. of tumor and cancer mm -hmm. that I have within breast health. Is that yeah, pretty so, much your role? So we, you know, certainly here at Mass at the Mass General Cancer Center in Wellesley and in Boston and in Waltham, we often choose to see our p new patients in a multidisciplinary setting because um, as you and your listeners know, breast cancer is treated from multiple disciplines, surgery, mm -hmm. medical oncology, which is me, often radiation oncology, and of course so many other disciplines are key as well, like a genetic counselor, psychologist, social worker, nutritionist, physical therapist, I can go on and on. But um, So my job, I think of the oncology roles, we really take care of the whole patient every step of the way from that day she finds out her diagnosis, you have breast cancer, which is a really hard day for the patient and the doctor, um, to outlining the treatment plan, to getting the patient through all that treatment, and then to survivorship care. So we really take care of our patient at each step of the way. I saw someone today who's probably 10 years out from her breast cancer, which is amazing. Yes. And we still say, come back in a year. We just want to check in. And you know, exactly. the patients really value that as well. That's wonderful. And I love that approach too of being multidisciplinary, mm -hmm. having all of the experts kind of help the whole person navigate Correct. something that can be mm -hmm. so scary. And a lot of times too, it's the first time we're hearing a lot of these words that right. as medical professionals, you use them all the time because this is your day in and day out. So being able to have that human experience of this is the first time someone just heard the words that they had breast cancer right. and really being able to have that empathy moving forward with them. Right. That's yeah. Enough. It certainly, those are hard conversations and I'm very thankful where I work. We have such wonderful colleagues to also help support women and men when they get a diagnosis. You know, my social work colleagues, Dr. David Bullis, our yes. psychologist who you've met, you know, all of these wonderful colleagues of mine um, just really help support the patients at this time, which is so key. Right. One of the things that I found so shocking about my um, personal treatment was you know, coming to terms with the fact that a breast cancer diagnosis is not a perfect science. Correct. And I was not expecting kind of the constant tweaking of my treatment. And, you know, I think for a lot of our listeners too, who can resonate with being like the A type, I got a plan, I'm sticking to the plan, I'm gonna right. follow the plan and I'm gonna be fine. The moment I remember coming back and was like, oh, you know, we're gonna tweak this a little bit or we're gonna introduce a new chemotherapy or we're gonna try this. and. In retrospect, I love that type of attention and care because it just allowed my oncologist to really tailor the treatment plans grounded in science. They were always reading like the latest studies and coming out with like the latest and greatest of, well, you know, we might want to try something else because studies have shown X, Y, and Z. And so now I've had a full appreciation for that. But to our listeners also, especially if they're newly diagnosed, that not Getting off course is actually expected sometimes, right? And tweaking your treatment plan, I think, is part of that process. So I like to inform people who reach out to our organization of like, oh my God, I just got diagnosed, what do I do? And kind of validating the fact that it's okay that the plan changes and coming to terms with that, because I didn't know that. 
imagine as a patient and to many of your listeners going through cancer treatments often like a roller coaster like you you know you think yes. it's going to be xyz but often there's something that takes you off path and and i think it's i really try to tell my patients that so they have that understanding that sometimes it's not a perfect science that there may be something maybe of a fever and that delays the chemo or maybe you have a side effect and we have to dose reduce it or change the chemo. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Or maybe your doctor was just at the San Antonio breast cancer meeting and there was a new study saying we should be offering all of our patients another drug, you know, so these things happen all the time. So I think it's really important to have good communication Mm -hmm. between the patient and the doctor and all the caregivers and everyone else who's right. providing that support so we help our patients get through this because it's very difficult. Exactly, exactly. And I like that piece too about the patient really talking about those side effects too with their doctors right. because to your point, we don't want to live like so terribly during this period, right? We're just right. trying to get through the day to day. So there are opportunities to tweak the dosage or counter some of the side effects if you're feeling really nauseous or absolutely having trouble eating and that sort. So right. absolutely. that's wonderful. And that kind of goes back into like your your interest and expertise also on survivorship, right? It's not just going through the active treatment, but then how can we take the patient past treatment when, from speaking in my own terms, to realizing I'm ER positive. Um, I think I just found out too that I was also HER2 positive. For some reason, I thought I was kind of this gray area. And it's kind of funny. It's, I'm three years out now, which is... That's ex- great. Thank you. Yeah, I just celebrated my three years from my diagnosis date um, <laughs> That's awesome. on the 22nd, so just yeah. a couple of days ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, it's something I'm not even thinking about all the time now, which is nice kind of getting over that hurdle for a little bit. And I called my doctor. I'm like, can you just remind me? Like, I forget what my pathology report said. And I'm talking to all these great women who like know like verbatim all the details of right. the exact type of tumor they have. So I'm like, yeah, I can't remember. And they're like, oh, you're HER2 positive. I'm like, oh, I guess I forgot about that. You know, and then it kind of spurs into like all the research and everything. I'm like, wait, what does this mean? I have to remind myself. Um, But it's just kind of great to kind of allow yourself to not think about it all the time. Right. But then also realize that with some of our diagnoses, it is with us all the time. You're never actually going to hear those words, you are cancer free, because after you, at least my understanding is that once you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, even if you don't have any evidence of disease, there's always opportunity, whether in short term or long term, that it can still bubble up. And yeah, so I think I that's mean, really where the, the survivorship piece right. comes into play. Like how can we right. take a very active stance 10 years, 20, 30 years down the line um, so that we can exactly. prevent recurrence. So fortunately, you raised many good points. Um, fortunately, we do have so many treatments that you know after the intense chemotherapy, surgery, radiation period, there's still the role in many cases for endocrine therapy, you know, tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor sometimes with ovarian suppression um, for women with estrogen sensitive tumors. Certainly we're learning more and more about other, you know, experimental protocols for patients mm. with maybe triple negative breast cancer. Maybe they'd benefit from another drug after surgery. So there's there's so many things that keep changing in our field, but you do raise a good point that that's why we recommend that patients follow up with us, you know, certainly every six months after that initial intense treatment phase, just to kind of monitor for any late side effects from treatment, any mm-hmm. other concerns, certainly monitoring for risk for recurrence, et cetera. So, um, so we're still part of your team, even after yes. that intense, intense treatment phase. And we want you to still be part of our right. team because Absolutely. anytime the doctors are like, oh, come back in three months or six months, and we feel like, oh, who's watching me? Who's going to like ask how I'm doing right now? And, you know, there's kind of that weaning off of your right. your medical team. So I know some patients I know who have, for example, I think of a patient who had 
recently completed her year of Herceptin treatment. And, mm. you know, she had been looking forward to that last day for so long. She just had it marked on her calendar. She was so excited. But then on that last day, she actually had mixed feelings about it. Like, <laughs> wow, I actually like coming here every three weeks and seeing my nurse who always puts me in the same chair by the window and brings yes. me, you know, the ginger ale and like, you know, just that wonderful TLC that she was experiencing during her treatment. And then right. it's kind of really hard to say, we'll see you in a few months. Right. Really? A few months? You know, so exactly. I think that's why the survivorship care piece is really something we want to keep working on. Well, we refer to you folks, the oncology team, as the primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. And when we're asked by nurse navigators or oncology teams or whatever, who are we and what do we do? We just say that you are the primary caregiver and when they leave you behind, so they enter into the post-active treatment right. stage, PTSD sets in. And we yeah. had that discussion with Dr. Bullis and uh, he had some interesting thoughts on that. But most of the nurse navigators in the oncology teams that we have spoken to have agreed with that. So that's a very natural feeling for her mm -hmm. coming back to see you. It's that, it's that blankie. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And just the validation too that you're being looked after, you're being watched, you can ask questions. I remember I was in a survivorship program for the first year of my treatment right. and they were like, what, you know, I think the social worker was trying to get like, get us to express, you know, where do we feel safe, where do we feel comfortable? And I think she was expecting like at home or like at the church or something like that. And I was like, oh, here, here at the doctor's office. I like coming here. It's like, I feel really safe here. Like I don't want to be taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's really like how I felt because yeah. you had everyone there. You could ask questions too. If some, there was right. aches and pains, you knew that there were people there to support you. And that was really nice. Right. No, I think that's a very common feeling amongst many of our patients. Yes. <laughs> and then I graduated from my one year and I realized that their survivorship right. program did not right. allow me to come back year two. Oh. I was like, but this was really fun. We got to meet once a month. Right. They connect and share stories, and there was normally lunch. And so, yeah, now we kind of have to create our own survivorship mm. group, so to speak. Right. Um, you know, because the hospitals and everything are only doing so much for those in active treatment or in various stages, et cetera. And that's so. why your organization plays such an important role to help bring people together and help address these issues after treatment yes. so people don't feel alone. Exactly. And that's exactly what we want to start partnering with right. the hospitals to say, okay, so when you tell somebody to come back, you know, for an extended period of time, give them a brochure or give them a resource so we can be like the blanket that picks them up and be like, all right, great, you're transitioning onto our programs and our communities because right. we notice that there are questions that come up, especially on like a lot of the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen that we're always asking questions like, why do I feel so achy? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I was just on a run the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't breathe like am I developing mm. asthma I'm just getting old but like technically you know for someone under 40 who's premenopausal being forced into menopause mm. you know your body does age differently right so right. I have like well I'm supposed to be my age but then internally my body thinks I'm something else well so good for you for going for a run <laughs> that's really important yes, so trying but hopefully yeah, your so, breathing felt better yeah <laughs> <laughs> right can you speak to any of that in terms of like how some of your patients are dealing with aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen and side effects right. and grappling with you know, being in menopause at such a young right. age. Yeah, so I know this is really hard, especially for our younger patients um, who are perhaps on ovarian suppression or perhaps had 
um, their ovaries removed, and certainly the side effects can be really difficult. Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, mood changes, feeling deconditioned, worried about weight gain, all these things. So we certainly try to address these issues for all of our patients and refer patients to appropriate specialists to help address these concerns when needed. But um, compliance with the endocrine therapy is so important for all of our patients, especially our younger women. So we really do everything we can to help manage those side effects. And maybe it sometimes means switching the drug to another medication, but we just try to work together um, to optimize the treatment. Yes. And that's a really good point too, because I completely agree that it's important to try and endure these medicines for whether it's five years or 10 years. And I was the lucky one that my doctor recommended me to be on the aromatase inhibitors mm-hmm. plus a Lupron shot. Right. And I think there were three of them. And you know, trial number one did not work at all. Yeah. I didn't really understand that totally completing your body of estrogen has other psychological effects as well. Like other, you're changing the chemistry of your body. And so I was not prepared for that. Um, So he's like, okay, no problem. There's more. We have other options. And I think it's important to know that just because I'm experiencing these side effects, somebody else may be thriving on that type of medication and not having a problem with it at all. Mm -hmm. So again, pill number two did not really work. I just wasn't feeling it. I'm now on letrozole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we walked in and I'm like, we're going to make this work. We're going to figure out what we have to do, what supplements I should be taking, what lifestyle changes should I be making because like, I'm in it. Like we've been aggressive so far and I'm not gonna stop just because you taught me 10 years. So I don't know what has necessarily changed, but I've been on letrozole now for about a year and a half. Great. And I think my body has now finally adjusted to it that the side effects seem to have really minimized in my experience. Great. So I, yeah, I'm very thrilled about that. And I don't know if that's typical that the longer you're on the pill, your body just kind of gets more and more into menopause and you're just more used to it. Um, or really what, what the changes were, but I have to say, I'm glad we got over that kind of initial challenging hump. Yeah. I'm so glad you found a medication that you tolerate well. And this is very common. This happens in clinic all the time. We switch the medication around. So we find the one that works best for an individual and Why did that one work better for you than a nastrozole? Who knows? But I'm just so glad that you're tolerating it and hopefully taking it every day. Of course you are Um, Mm -hmm. because it's important. I always tell my patients every time you take that pill, think of it as your best friend. This is your weapon against the breast cancer. And so it's really important to take it every day, not miss a dose. Obviously, sometimes it happens, but in general, just be compliant and it's probably the most important thing you do every day oh. in addition to enjoying your life. <laughs> when I like look at my bottles of pills like I line up, I'm like, this is the most important thing every yes, day. Yes, absolutely. It is that. your friend. Exactly. <laughs> Positive association. Yeah. So that leads me to like ask the question then, um, what happens after that like five year mark or 10 right. year mark? Um, what do the studies say that why is there these benchmarks when right. someone can stop being on these pills? Um, does your body then right. go back to producing estrogen or like what's Right, you're asking a really good question that our field is still wrestling with because okay. um, certainly the data for ovarian suppression in young women like yourself is really, they, it was done for five years. So when we get to that five-year point, now what happens? Do we keep it going? Is, the, is our young patient now actually in menopause? You know, How do mm-hmm. we figure that out? Um, do we keep the aromatase inhibitor going? Do we switch to tamoxifen? What about the bone health, cardiovascular risk, et cetera? So you're asking yes. really good questions that we're still trying to figure out the right answer. So I usually yeah. at this point tell my patients, 
more and more data is coming out. You know, we have our meetings, our big meeting is San Antonio Breast Cancer Meeting, which is in December, which is yes. amazing. Um, and so certainly um, these studies get updated further at each major meeting. The American Society of Clinical Oncology, that meeting's in June. So that's when we really learn the updates on okay. figuring out for someone, you know, a young patient, like, is five years really the appropriate duration for ovarian suppression? But what happens at five years? Do we keep the aromatase inhibitor going, right. switch, et cetera. So these are really good questions you're asking. Yeah, I'm sure your you. doctor probably gives you the same kind of vague <laughs> answer because we're still trying to figure it out. No, and I think it's just great to keep asking these questions right. because mm-hmm. it is top of mind and you know, not having a medical background and we have these discussions around just the breast cancer community, right. you know, everyone's getting different information sometimes. Correct. And it's okay for different medical institutions to have different philosophies as well. So right. it's just always nice to kind of bring resurface some of these questions. You're like, so how should we handle it? Right. And it's not like, you know, you're not my oncologist, so right. you don't know my entire chart. And there's so many factors that go right. into Absolutely. all of these decisions. Um, but that's something too. I enjoy conversations with women who are um, ER positive or right. um, estrogen, progesterone, HER2 positive, and just talking about you know the lifestyle and quality of life when you get right. into this phase. I feel like when we're going through chemotherapy or radiation or even surgery and your recovery time, you have like a map. Right. And you're kind of like checking the box of like, Absolutely. okay, I just have to do this. I have to muscle through this. I have to muscle through this. But then when someone says, and they're on this best friend pill for five years, you're like, oh, but this is really starting to affect my day to day. Like, am I emotionally stable to like get to and from work? Am I able to do the dishes and pick up my children because my joints hurt and like do the day to day? Um, You know, and so that's really where those qualities of life questions come in of, is this worth it for me? Or, you know, can I just get to two years because that's what my doctor recommends and then you know what, I'm going to take things differently, try something else. So it's just been an interesting conversation on how that works. Right. And then, you know, to your point too, once the doctors say come back in like six months or a year, I can't even fathom what happens when like I pick up my last CVS bottle of Letrozole right. and I'm like, and this is 10 years, like goodbye. <laughs> like what happens then? Like do I feel right. like I don't, I don't know how to mentally prepare for that. I like know. am I liberated or am I scared or, you know, right. what actions then should I be taking to make sure I'm still doing the best to prevent recurrence? Right. No, these are absolutely, these are the kind of conversations I have all day long in clinic, (laughs) you know, with my patients. So, um, and this whole concept of extended duration endocrine therapy for ER positive breast cancer is definitely an evolving area. And certainly as the oncologist, we kind of take into account the stage of the tumor and the grade and other features to help counsel our patients. Do we think five years is enough, 10 years, more than 10 years? Again, the data continues to evolve to help us make yes. these decisions with our patient, of course, depending on the side effects she's experiencing, et cetera. Absolutely. I, when I was down in Philadelphia this past weekend for the Living Beyond Breast Cancer Conference, I learned new information about, so one of my best friends and I were like down there and so mm-hmm. I'm triple positive, she's triple negative, and we're constantly like, I don't know, learning as much as we can about right. each other's diagnoses. And the presenter was talking about, you know, if someone with triple negative can get to that five-year mark, their chances of recurrence dr- dramatically decreases over the long yes. ter- longer mm-hmm. term. And so we're, like, happy and rallying for her. Like, we're really excited about that because she's been coming from the mindset of there are no aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen True. or endocrine, endocrine therapy that I could be taking right now. So I just need to make sure that I'm exercising and on a healthy diet and doing everything I can to like maintain a healthy weight. And that has become her medicine. And she just wants to get to the five-year mark and reduce her chances. 
And then he continues and starts talking about the the triple positives. And, you know, I'm feeling lucky. I mean, yes, there's some aches and pains because of the medicine, but at least I'm on hormonal therapies. And then I was shocked to find out that the longer I'm, I don't even know the right terminology, but the longer that I'm like living without evidence of disease, my risk actually increases for recurrence after 10 years and after 20 years. And so I would, I'm not sure, I'm not, again, I don't know if yeah. you I can like know, validate I that. I would say or... it increases. I mean, this is a hard conversation to have with patients, but certainly you were at this conference and you learned about this, which is good. Knowledge is important. So it's true, triple negative breast cancers, we hear that they are unfortunately more aggressive, potentially have a higher risk for recurrence. Certainly that peaks around year two or three. Okay. And so when a patient makes it to five years, we actually can say we have good data that suggests the likelihood of a recurrence at that point for a triple negative breast cancer is exceedingly rare. So that's great. That's wonderful, yes. And then when it comes to estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which is a totally different type of disease, different genetic underpinning, like different biology, um, when a patient reaches that five-year point and says, doctor, am I cured? It's actually a you know, bit of a conversation because actually we have data, as you just stated, that there is a risk of recurrence beyond five years and therefore that's why there's so much attention and study to mm -hmm. should we have our patients take endocrine therapy for more than five years, 10 years, maybe right. 15 years. So um, I wouldn't say it keeps going up, but it never reaches zero, I guess is the right, way to think yes. about it. But, mm -hmm. And I tell my patients, you know, I wouldn't, obviously I do my best to counsel my patients to not go to bed every night worrying about that. I said, you know, we can walk out the door and get hit by a car too. Like nobody oh God, really absolutely. knows the future, live your life. And certainly I counsel my patients on the steps they can take to optimize their health and hopefully do everything we can to lower that risk. But yes. it is true. It's never reaching zero. And right. that's really the point they were trying to make. Yes, no, absolutely. And I appreciate you just kind of like re-articulating that yeah. too. So appreciate that. And it's also, you know, all those factors you were referencing earlier, like where lymph nodes involved, the size of the tumor, Correct. and so many things that are the unique to that. really helps inform exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So you just mentioned a little bit of like these healthy lifestyle choices yeah. that we can kind of take ownership of, that we have control over. Um, yeah, that was a great conversation in our last podcast yeah. with Dr. Bullis. We were talking about like, why do we feel so out of control going through right. a breast cancer diagnosis? Because so much of it is out of our control. He, so he validated that for all of us. Right. Like, okay, well, at least, at least that's okay. But what can we control? And it's sometimes, you know, are we able to have the energy to go for a walk around the block, get some fresh air, choosing right. what uh, foods we're going to put into our body and eat during right. different meals, despite the nausea or the loss of taste buds or all of the other side effects that come right. with it. So I would love to kind of change the topic sure. a little bit and talk about all these like great positive things that we can be doing to you know, continue to survive and treat our bodies as well as possible. Right. So I think the first thing is definitely recognizing you know, after a patient goes through all that intense treatment up front, surgery, plus or minus chemo, plus or minus radiation, and now it's taking the endocrine therapy or not, you know, you have to recognize that that was a very difficult few months. You know, you mentioned reference PTSD earlier, like it's very, it's just a very challenging time. And so I always tell my patients to be kind to themselves. And if you gain weight or if you're just still feeling fatigued, like give it time, it takes time for the body to recover. Um, but certainly there are steps that a person can take to help sort of bounce back further and optimize her health. And that's where a lot of these things we've talked about at our 
meeting a few months ago really play a role and what are these things? So these are things that as doctors we counsel our patients about all the time. Exercise, healthy eating, get enough sleep, which is a big one I need to work on. Um, <laughs> stress management, the power of social connections. Like these are all really key things that all of us can do, whether we have cancer or not, to help optimize our health and well-being. And interestingly, in the breast cancer literature, some of these behaviors are also associated with a lower risk of recurrence. So that's why it's okay. so important to educate about this topic. And that's why I'm so happy to be on your podcast yes. to help provide further education about that. And we mentioned that certainly this has been an interest of mine for a long time and um, is very much aligned with this field of lifestyle medicine. I'm going to hold up this book. Yes, you Show and tell. Me. I don't know if you can see it, but um, it's the Lifestyle Medicine Handbook. And one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Beth Frades, is the first author of this book. And I know we spoke about it when we had coffee. And it's an excellent book because it really is an introduction to the power of healthy habits. And each chapter really addresses, it's not really meant for a cancer survivorship population, but it really could be for anyone exercise, nutrition, sleep, social connectedness, stress management. I mean, I think you would say it's been very valuable to Absolutely. you. And, um, and these are the types of things I try to educate my patients about and certainly in the program I've started, which we can talk about yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, when we were getting coffee and you yeah. were mentioning this, I literally went on Amazon and I was like, oh my God, two days is not fast enough. I, I was know. like, oh, I have to wait two days. Does Barnes & Noble carry it? Um, right. So I do recommend, and in the show notes for this podcast too, I can Great. link to the book so anyone who's listening Great. will be able to have we'll Show and tell. Yeah, one second. <laughs> I love this book as well. So. Yeah, so the Lifestyle Medicine Handbook, an introduction to the power of healthy perfect. habits. Yes. And um, Dr. Beth Frades has been an amazing collaborator who I've had the privilege to work with, and she's a leader in this field of lifestyle medicine. And um, certainly she articulates, she and her, the other authors, all of these um, areas yeah. of importance very well in this book. And I think it's written for any level, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. You don't yeah. have to be a doctor or you know, a nurse practitioner to understand it. I think it's really written at a yeah. very accessible level. I completely agree. I was just paging through it um, earlier today, actually, and I stumbled upon a graphic that was like, you know, the color of your vegetables means something. And Absolutely. it was like easy to remember like, okay, so the white vegetables are helping the bones. And I can remember that because my bones are white or, you right. know, the purple vegetables, like the eggplants are like great for the brain. And just like, this is really wonderful to actually know, not just what you're eating because it tastes delicious, but you're like literally like putting this great nutrition into your Absolutely. body and knowing how you're helping rejuvenate your cells and your molecules and just like regrowing your body to be as healthy as possible. Absolutely. So is there, um, you know, a lot of times I think that we've been going through chemotherapy, some of us going through radiation as well, just have put so much toxicity into our body. And I understand that that's part of the process of, you know, killing the cancer and trying to, you know, be aggressive and you know, start the survivorship plan. So what do you recommend for, for your patients who are going through all this toxic treatment? I remember like after chemotherapy, I wanted to go home and make like a green smoothie and just like detox. And then I'm like, wait, but am I detoxing the, the poison that's supposed to be helping? Or, you know, just how long does it stay in your body? And when it eventually leaves, I guess, does it leave? Like, yeah, well, good really question. Know. So I think for my patients who are actually in the midst of chemo, as you unfortunately know all too well, like your taste buds change. Some foods taste really awful that you used to love and some things that you hate taste really good and some people just want to eat bagels every day and right. I usually tell my patients be kind to your body when you're going through chemo just eat what tastes good 
obviously I'd love for you to eat a green smoothie every day, but like <laughs> most people don't really have the energy for that or feel like sure. that. Um, so I'm usually, I don't really make major dietary restrictions or advice during chemo. I think it's kind of what feels right at that time. But yeah. certainly, you know, I think after going through all that, many women and men ask like, what can I do? What kind of diet should I be on now mm-hmm. to optimize my health to kind of, you know, what can I do? Right. And so I do think in this book, the chapter on nutrition is really excellent. And certainly you mentioned the green smoothie. It's a great intro to thinking about, you know, the importance of a plant-based diet, Mm -hmm. lots of fruits and vegetables, eat the rainbow, as you already alluded to. Um, And certainly it's okay to have meat, chicken, and fish, but I think the majority of our plate really should be fruits and vegetables, which are so healthy for us and unprocessed, you know, whole grains are important, beans, nuts. So these are all really healthy foods for your body that would help us recover after going through something traumatic like chemotherapy. Absolutely. Great. And what does lifestyle medicine mean? If you can define right. that for our listeners. Right. So I know it's a very, it's kind of a burgeoning field, I guess, yes. in medicine. And it's really taking the approach, you know, to think about how can we prevent chronic diseases? Mm-hmm. So what steps, how can we counsel patients to, you know, take on important behaviors to prevent heart disease, you know, mm-hmm. um, stroke, cancer, um, how can we best empower our patients? I like that word, empower, yes. to take on these healthy lifestyle behaviors. And certainly it's very relevant for cancer survivorship as well, because as we've been discussing, after one goes through you know, cancer treatment and all that entails, it's really important to for, our, for everyone to kind of be proactive and say, okay, now I want to, this was unfortunately, I just went through this, and what can I do to optimize my health? So how yes. can I exercise? What can I do? What should I be eating? How much sleep do I need? How do I manage stress? What do I do with all these people in my life? Some of them have been helpful. Some of them have not been helpful. <laughs> that comes up all the time too. Yes. You know, So mm-hmm. I think that's really what the lifestyle medicine field is getting at. How mm-hmm. can we empower individuals to take, be proactive about their health and take these healthy steps? Yes. Oh, I love that. Two questions, two points. Yeah. That. that was wonderful. Um, alcohol and then Good how, do you, how do you address the issue of those folks who are not helpful? Um, wow, these are good questions. So I know alcohol is not a fun one. Nobody likes it when I talk to them about alcohol, and I do have to ask all my patients about this, but in general, the studies would suggest that alcohol does need to be limited for um, individuals with a history of breast cancer. And I mean, you don't have to eliminate it completely, but certainly limiting it to no more than three to four drinks a week seems to be the most appropriate recommendation. Okay, I tell someone if they're going on vacation and it's a very special occasion, like someone's getting married and they have a few more drinks that particular week, probably okay but on average you know in these epidemiologic studies it would suggest that three to four drinks a week is really where that limit should be Mm. and I know and then there's the how does one define the size of a drink and so you can go on the internet and see what a real serving size is which is a wake-up call for some of us I know but that is one that is important so and alcohol by the way also has lots of calories so for those of us who are really trying to watch our weight and think about that um, we have to kind of take that into account as well. We were doing a cooking demo not too long ago, Ooh. a live cooking demo. We had a nutritionist um, teach us a plant-based diet. Wonderful. And she sent out the recipe in advance so we could all like go grocery shopping and pick everything up. And then in the middle of it, too, she's like, you can never plan for technology. So her sound right. went out. Oh. And she was hosting, and she was the nutritionist to go into like all the details. So I'm like, 
she'll figure out her sound. And we just did like a walk around of our stove. Like, this is what my like broccoli looks like. Oh and my. the water's almost boiling. How are you doing over there? But I love <laughs> but that. But it was great. So yeah, it's good to be kind of go with the flow. But I love that you did a cooking class. That's so yes. awesome. And actually, um, one of the aspects of lifestyle medicine that's really interesting is that we should really be learning to cook our own food. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's much healthier for us than going out all the time or doing takeout. Hey, I'm guilty of it too, oh, but yes. um, it's easier, right? You get home, you're so correct. tired. I know, but there's this wonderful, also growing field called culinary medicine. And okay. um, Dr. Ronnie Polak is actually a leader in this field. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to collaborating with yeah. him soon on a study, really helping how can we coach and teach certainly doctors, but also our patients about healthy eating and actually as part of the survivorship program that I have launched here at this hospital, I'm partnering with an amazing colleague, Dr. Kimberly Parks, who's also a lifestyle medicine doctor with an interest in culinary medicine. And we're doing a culinary medicine cooking class next week for oh um, breast cancer survivors. And I will tell you about it afterwards. Oh, I can't wait to so hear you're welcome about it. to join yes. or I'll tell you all about it. But I'm um, just learning how to cook. I mean, Certainly, hopefully we all know how to cook to some degree, but when it comes yes. to really focusing on a plant-based diet, really what can you do with kale or other greens yes. or broccoli and all these wonderful cruciferous vegetables that we should be eating. I mean, it's really easy actually, but sometimes yeah. when someone just teaches you some basic skills, it makes mm -hmm. a major difference. Yeah, and our webinar was you know a live cooking demo and you know, while like the peppers were in the stove like cooking, we were talking about like the nutrition, nutrition in our broccoli and then also we started making this like amazing sauce because at the end of the day like your Buddha bowl is not like complete without this like amazing drizzle of you know protein packed tahini and some healthy fats and then by the end of the, sh the time like we all were putting our ingredients together and we're like all right bon appetit good night this is like amazing everyone could not wait to take a bite of their food right, right. and you just felt so good like knowing like what you were eating and what it was doing for you. Absolutely. So we'd be happy to record you two. You can do it in your own kitchen. We do it yeah. remotely through a Zoom conference and put it out there to the to yeah. the multitude. Yeah, so. we've been getting requests. So oh. I think we're moving more towards a virtual platform to oh. help those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. We still do a lot of in-person events as well, but our reach can definitely get to more oh, people absolutely. across the country, across the world from a virtual um, space. And so right now we're in the process of lining up, you know, different events. We're trying to aim for two virtual events a month for our spring semester. Great. And really just all sorts of topics from, you know, nutrition, diet, exercise, meditation, sexual health and wellness, Absolutely. you know, all the questions mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of bubble up when you're in that aftermath phase of, all right, now I'm through active treatment, but things aren't quite right. How can I just you know, get my life back on track. Absolutely. So yes. important. I love that you're doing those things. Oh, you're helping you. so many people. Yes. So we'll definitely collaborate and I'll yeah. share all that great stuff wonderful. with you too. That's wonderful. So you raised a ridiculous amount of money running the Boston Marathon. Um, I think <laughs> it was what, $30,000 yeah. you raised and were able to start your own survivorship program as part of your practice. I would love to hear more about, you know, survivorship programs right. in general. I think it's something that's much needed in the field. Mm -hmm. So, because otherwise... It's a labyrinth, and we don't really know how to Absolutely. navigate that. We're back to work. Our hair is back. Picking up the kids. Like, we look normal, and everyone's like, oh, okay, your cancer's, you know, in that little pretty box up on the shelf. You're fine. And I remember being slightly annoyed one day when it was like a catch-22, right? Like, no one's asking me about my health anymore. So I'm like, okay, cool. We're having normal conversation. And then they're like, wait, don't you care, though, about my health anymore? 
work, right? Like, don't you want to know how I'm doing? And no, that's that, really hard. You know, you're still going in for um, like Zometa infusions or different sort of maintenance plans. And so, you know, it's not always top of mind to the public. And we Absolutely. talk a lot about um, like those invisible illnesses, right? Absolutely. I hear this a lot from <coughs> patients, for sure, that... You know, you look normal, but right. really don't feel quite normal um, inside. And exactly. so sometimes that's really hard to navigate. Yeah. But yeah, so I was really, for a few years now, I've been really excited about um, launching my own breast cancer survivorship program for my patients. Um, and I've, I met Dr. Beth Brady's a few years ago, and we've been meeting about this for a while. And so I was really excited to get this started um, this fall. And I was fortunate to get a number to run for team Newton Wellesley Hospital awesome. um, to raise money for this particular program and by the way I don't tell my patients they have to run a marathon a few asked <laughs> if they could join the marathon team and I was like maybe not right now get finish chemotherapy first um, yes. but certainly I have some of my patients have really taken up running which is pretty inspiring yes. um, but anyway, um, one of my, um, the husband of one of my dear, dear patients who unfortunately passed away a year ago, he also reached out to me and wanted to give back. And we discussed some of the things that his wife had been really passionate about. And one of the things she was super passionate about was nutrition and exercise. And she would take advantage of yoga retreats for breast cancer mm -hmm. patients. Like she did everything. She was an amazing inspiration who loved life. She was just, she loved going on walks with her dogs in the forest and gardening and she did everything. And so, um, and she and I had talked about this kind of program many times. So I knew exactly what she would have wanted. So that's really, wow. um, this wonderful family um, really supported me very generously along with many of my friends. And that's really yeah. what helped launch the program. So I'm so excited. I launched the program in early September and it's free to the participants and it's okay. a 12 week program based on um, the principles of lifestyle medicine, really with the goal to empower breast cancer survivors to, again, optimize health after going through treatment and mm -hmm. really focusing on so many of these key topics, physical activity, mm -hmm. attitude, nutrition, stress management, sleep, all the things that we've been touching upon in this conversation. Right. Now, would you define some of these survivorship techniques are applicable regardless of what stage you are with breast cancer or are there specific nuances if you're more advanced? Well, that's a very good question. So when I was speaking to my, um, the husband of my dear patient, he actually stated, you know, it would have been really important to her that this be available to patients at any stage, okay. stage zero to stage four. And I made it very clear when I started recruiting patients for this group that anyone was welcome. Okay. One of my dear patients has a gynecologic cancer and she wanted to be in it. I said, you're welcome. <laughs> Join <Yes>. us. <laughs> we want you. Very Join inclusive. us. So, um, and actually I had a few folks from other hospitals reach out to me and I, right. I let them join as well. So, oh, um, so it's been a really great experience so far yes. and I'm just very grateful that oh, I can only imagine. Like, I'm so smiling well. like here just listening yeah. to you talk about it because obviously the passion is just like jumping off the screen and yeah. I can only imagine the women and in this program or just, you know, building that community and you can just kind of watch the magic oh, happen. That's actually been the probably most rewarding aspect of yeah. it so far. So there's 12 to 14 women of all different ages, ranging from thirties to seventies mm -hmm. and the wonderful bonds and social connections that have already formed in just yes. a few weeks. It's pretty remarkable to witness that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't that's even need great. to be there anymore. They can do their own group. <laughs> well, that happened to me down in Philadelphia as yeah. well. So we were hosting a um, survivors and thrivers brunch after the conference Wonderful. and, um, yeah. you know, by donation, we really want, didn't want like, you know, the any sort of like barrier financially for people to come to our brunch. 
and I feel like we really lucked out because we had perfect weather. It was restaurant week yeah. in Philadelphia, and we were going to this like really posh, fun restaurant to just kind yeah. of like go out and celebrate. And that's really what we like the women wanted. That's amazing. And, like the conversations, people were like exchanging phone numbers and emails. That's wonderful. And you're just like, that's what the community is. Absolutely. So, Congratulations to both of us. This is amazing. Yeah, amazing. (laughs) Um, You know, I hear a lot too, and I wanted to start talking to more who more women who've been diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, two different thoughts because what I love about my community is, you know, through email, through direct messages, through phone calls I have with women, I really get to kind of hear what their questions and concerns are, and Mm -hmm. then become that conduit to like talk to the medical community, Mm -hmm. ask for you know guest bloggers to help validate some of the information that we're not experts on or have something like this on our podcast where Mm -hmm. we can really have these open conversations and being like that conduit between, you know, the doctors and the patients. Mm -hmm. One of the two things, kind of the two buckets that I'm hearing a lot that we're going to start moving forward through with survivingbreastcancer.org is developing specific resources for women who are diagnosed at um, a younger age. Mm -hmm. And they're Mm -hmm. talking about questions about fertility or, you know, sexual drive and all of these Mm -hmm. things that if you're diagnosed post-menopause, you might have some different concerns and challenges as well. So really trying to be able to flush out some of those nuances. And then same with stage four. I hear a lot of women saying that they have unique challenges Mm -hmm. and they would sometimes prefer just to have you know, a late stage support group specifically for their concerns and their needs. And so I, um, you know, just being myself, popped into, you know, this this meeting when I was down in Philadelphia at the mm-hmm. Living Beyond Breast Cancer Conference. And it was just amazing to meet these beautiful women talking about their day-to-day of coping with, you know, how do we deal with death when three people die a day mm-hmm. in our community? Or how do we deal with, you know, not feeling like we're a burden on our caretakers where, you know, the caretaker's like, how could you even think you're a burden? Like, we just want you right. to be happy and comfortable. But there's a lot of psychology, I think, that goes behind, you know, living with a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. But one of the beauties of the conversations that we were having were just, like, feeling the sun on your skin when you, like, walk outside. You're like, things just felt different, right? Like, after you've been diagnosed with, right. I guess, with any stage, you're just, like, life is just so much better knowing that you've come so close to, like, the edge right mm-hmm. and so we were like oh my god and then walking around the summer with like an ice cream cone I know it's not the healthiest but it was like the best yeah and just like really being able to enjoy and like linger in those moments a little bit longer and what I was concerned about when I walked in was going to be a very challenging and sad conversation ended up with like rolling laughter and like all of us talking about our favorite vacations and wonderful just so much joy mm-hmm. and and that was really incredible Right. That sounds so I just amazing. To, like, I'm share so that glad story. you got to yeah. go to that conference and have that experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And it keeps me grounded too in, you know, the the topics of people who are going through mm-hmm. active treatments as mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. it's yeah. great. Sounds like a great conference. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- I don't know where they are next year. I hope to get down actually to San Antonio in mm-hmm. December. Oh, it's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of great opportunities. And then there was one in Chicago, I think, normally in like March mm-hmm. or April. Mm-hmm. Is it the call or Yeah. Some acronym. Love to find it. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of great conferences for sure. Yes. So what else would you like to share with our listeners? I feel like we're just now scratching the surface with health, wellness, lifestyle medicine, your survivorship right. program. And um, how can people get involved? Um, right. Well, get involved. Well, certainly your organization is one <laughs> great step. Um, yes. And it's amazing how much you've done in such a short period of time. So that's really wonderful. I certainly think seeking out resources in the community is really key. For example, 
here, I think throughout the country, there's the Live Strong program, which maybe yes. you participated in through YMCA's, which is a free exercise program for cancer survivors. It's a and great it's program. Amazing, and I've mm -hmm. had such great feedback from many of my patients. Did you do it actually? I personally did not do it. Yeah, um, I did show up and work out at the Y. Right. Um, but yeah, I I watched them. I observed them from my own like treadmill. Right. Right. <laughs> but people rave about it. I think it's a wonderful right. opportunity. Absolutely. So just to even get out of the house and know that you have a commitment. Right. to say, okay, I'm showing up today. I might be tired or fatigued, right. and I might just, you know, sit for a little while or lift very light weights, but I made it. I showed up today. Absolutely. And to have that level of purpose, I think, is really so, important. Yeah. And I think finding support, whether it's through a wonderful organization like yours or through support groups in the community or online, obviously social media has really taken off in terms of yes. breast cancer support. Many of my patients have friends in China with breast yes. cancer. You know, it's pretty amazing what I hear from my patients. So I think... Just the support piece is really key, as mm -hmm. you know, for anyone going through something like cancer yeah. diagnosis. So I think just taking advantage of all the resources in your community, whether it's mm -hmm. online or in person, Live Strong program, other exercise programs, cooking classes, yes. um, yoga classes, like there's just so many ways that one can kind of optimize health and also just right. keep learning about everything as you're doing and right. helping your listeners with that. Can yes. you speak to the one in forty program? Oh, absolutely. That you were working on as an advisor, we do have a lot of Ashkenazi followers. Absolutely, and, mm -hmm. uh, particularly stage four followers. So, so yes. talk about inspiration. So you, I see, as an inspiration. Another amazing woman who I've had the pleasure of getting to know the past few years. Her name is Lauren Kordak. So she tells this story. Oh my goodness! So she was um in her, I believe, late thirties, early forties and was seeing her doctor and she is of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and I believe her on her father's side of the family her paternal grandmother had had breast cancer and somewhere along the line someone suggested she get genetic testing to look for a BRCA mutation because of her Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and family history and she did and she did come back positive for a BRCA mm -hmm. mutation and around that time, unfortunately, was also diagnosed with ovarian cancer, like really around the same oh my time. Gosh. I know. And so her passion has been to really educate, particularly individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, that um, that population has a one in 40 chance, that's why it's called one in 40, mm -hmm. of carrying a BRCA mutation, actually regardless of family history. Even wow. with no family history, there's a one in 40 chance of having one of these mutations. So she's really taken this on as a passion, similar to your organization, yes. where she's had educational symposia, you know, podcasts, and other opportunities to really spread this message, primarily getting the message out to primary care doctors, mm -hmm. gynecologists, but also to the general public. And I think She's done an amazing job, and it's just she also has a very helpful website, one in forty. dot com. It's either or maybe it's dot org, but yeah. I highly recommend checking it out. And yes. she's a real force and inspiration. Excellent. Is she based in New York? She's actually that, local. You oh, should meet local. her. I can oh, introduce okay. you. Oh my gosh, I'd yes. love to meet her. Yes. 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 I yes. Think she's that's such amazing. An important topic too that a lot of times we don't necessarily know our history or ancestry even, mm -hmm. and you know sometimes if you do carry some sort of gene, families don't talk about it either. Right. It's you know, something very close to the vest. So how can we kind of change that that culture and make it more acceptable so that we right. can be preventative? Right, and certainly genetic counseling and testing yes. is really so important, especially for our younger population. Um, the NCCN, I shouldn't use um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, um, makes guidelines. It's a bunch of the top-notch cancer centers in the United States get together and make guidelines, and certainly women 
under age 50 should seek out genetic counseling and genetic testing. And in the Boston area, we're fortunate to have so many amazing hospitals with genetic counselors, but certainly in some parts of the country, it's there aren't as many genetic counselors, right. but the genetic testing piece is really important just to think about you know, prevention going forward. Absolutely. I think it's really important as well. I remember when I was being counseled about how many genes do I want to have tested because there's a variety of panels you can choose from. Um, Some of them are not cheap, so you're kind of trying to figure out like which ones are the most prevalent potentially. Um, But then also realizing the the decision is not just you finding out about your genes, but how this also is now impacting once you have these results, you know this. And your mother knows this, or your sister knows this, or your niece or nephew now know this information. And that can really change the conversation about healthcare, really, I think, where it's no longer a personal, this is my choice to, you know, go through chemotherapy or have a mastectomy, but rather, you know, do they want to know? Some people don't want to know. I know. And my answer to that, granted, I'm biased. This is my field, and I'm very much passionate about cancer prevention, but knowledge is power. Yes empower yourself with that information so you can make the best decision to be proactive for your own health mm-hmm. to lower your risk of getting whether it's breast cancer ovarian cancer pancreatic cancer and prostate nine. cancer yes. for men so i'm a big advocate of it of course but i yeah. get it i understand there are lots of concerns and that's why genetic counselors are so important to Absolutely. help provide that advice and counsel and address those concerns yeah. that people have and what about the issue of artificial intelligence in dealing with the prognosis or um, diagnosis? The role of artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's an interesting area that certainly, I know my colleagues at MGH are doing research in this area. Dr. Connie Lehman, who's head of breast radiology at MGH, who's amazing. Um, They're studying the role of artificial intelligence to look at mammograms and help predict risk for breast cancer in healthy women. And how amazing is that? So, wow. you know, certainly this is not my area of expertise, but a field that I'm definitely trying to learn more about myself. Because, again, I always tell anyone, if I could prevent all the breast cancers in the world, Absolutely. I'll find a new profession. That's yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> well, I feel like we've, like, talked about so many great topics here. Am I missing anything that we need to be asking or anything that you would like to share that we haven't covered? Well, I think it's just really important, the work you're doing, and also helping empower cancer survivors to find joy in life and be happy. And certainly, as a doctor, my goal is to help my patients feel good. So if they're not doing well on a medication, what can I do to help them take their medication, but also address those side effects to help them have joy and feel good about themselves and live their best life? So I think sounds like that's exactly what you're trying to do through your work as well and it's a great partnership and I think we just need to continue to work hard each day to achieve these goals yes wonderful I love your your passion your smile your kindness you're kind (laughs) well I say the same thing about you (laughs) the cancer diagnosis and delivering that type of news and watching patients go through something that that you walk into every single day trying to bring out the good in all of it. I commend you for all of that. So Aww. thank you. And well, thank please you. keep up your great work. Thank and you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, I can help too and like promote your survivorship program right. or if there's anything I can do to get involved and help um, the work that you do, let me know thank as you. well. So thank you. So I'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap, guys. <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. 
If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.